This sermon was preached by Peter Nakotra, head pastor of Grace Baptist Church in Woodhaven, Queens. Grace Baptist was planted in 2001 and is seeking to reach South Queens and North Brooklyn with the gospel. You can find more sermons from this series and many others at www.gbcny.org. Please feel free to distribute the sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Well, in the beginning of the 26th chapter of Matthew, Jesus told his disciples that the Passover was coming in two days or on Thursday after sundown. And on that night, he said he would be betrayed, he would be arrested, he would be crucified the next day. And although it was the Jewish leader's intention to kill him, they didn't want to kill him during the Passover. Because Jerusalem at that point was teeming with Jews from all over the empire who were there to celebrate the Passover feast. And they feared that the people would riot uh, if they put Jesus to death at that point because the people took Jesus as to be a prophet. Uh, so they were going to wait till after the feast, which meant to wait at least ten days, and then they would arrest him quietly and probably take him into some back alley and stone him. Uh, but it was God's will and God's intention that Jesus be hung on a cross and that it would be on the Passover and it would be for all people to see. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover. He is the ultimate meaning of the Passover. You see, the Passover feast was a remembrance. Remembrance of when and how God delivered the Jewish people who were in slavery in Egypt and delivered them out of that. And how the judgment of God came upon the land of Egypt with the, the death of the firstborn in every house coming upon them. And how the Jewish people were spared of that or, or the angel of death passed over them or the judgment of God passed by them uh, by the killing of a, a, a spotless lamb and putting the blood of that lamb on the three doorposts outside of their home. And when the angel of death came to destroy the firstborn in the home, the angel would, would pass over that house that had the blood around the doorpost. So a lamb was slaughtered, in essence, to protect those inside the house. A lamb, or the lamb in that case, died instead of the firstborn, and thus what you have is a substitute. And the Jews were committed and commanded to keep the Passover feast throughout all their generations so that they would never forget. They would never forget God's great deliverance of them. And so they had this very structured and symbolic Passover meal, which included four cups of wine, each blessed and each would be drunk at a specific time, hand washings, the roasted lamb, bitter herbs, unleavened bread, apple and nut paste, breaking and dipping of the bread, ritual questions asked about the Passover, the singing of six psalms called the Halal, which happened towards the end of the Passover. Right? And we read that Jesus wanted more than anything else to keep this Passover with his apostles. And, and for a few reasons. One, because he wanted them to come to understand, which they would, that the Passover, like every other feast, like every other ordinance, like every other holy day on the Jewish calendar, found its fulfillment in Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5-7 that Christ is our Passover. And he was sacrificed for us. So he wanted them to learn that the Lamb's life and the Lamb's blood, which delivered Israel from, from, from earthly slavery, so to speak, and the Lord's temple judgment, was foreshadowing the life and the blood of the Lamb of God, who would deliver men from slavery of sin and to sin and from an eternal judgment. He wanted them to grasp that the once-for-all time sacrifice for sin was in Christ. 
And that whereas the Passover literally created a nation, Jesus' work on the cross created the people of God. Secondly, he wanted to institute a new memorial, right? For a new covenant, a better covenant, we're told. A memorial that would remember how he, Jesus, set the captives, us, free by his substitutionary atonement, which we know as the Lord's table, which we will celebrate today. And I would like to consider this new covenant and this new memorial in verses 26 to 30 using a a pretty simple three-point outline. And if you have a bulletin, it'll be on the back of that bulletin. And there we had a covenant of death, a covenant of forgiveness, and a covenant of hope. So let's look first at a covenant of death in verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Well, the text says, as they were eating, so more than likely, uh, they were eating the lamb at that point, and Jesus takes a loaf of unleavened bread and blesses it and breaks it, uh, and then more than likely, he dips it uh, uh, piece by piece and breaks it and, and, and hands it out and passes it around to the 11 apostles. At this point, Judas is gone. He's gone already to betray Jesus to the chief priest and to the, to the Sanhedrin. All right? now, now, as the Passover bread was lifted up in a Passover ceremony, the host of the Passover would say these words. He would say, This is the bread of affliction, which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let everyone who hungers eat. Uh, let everyone who is needy come and eat the Passover meal. And that was a common saying that the host of the Passover would do and would speak. And the bread represented affliction, but also haste that the Jews had to leave Israel in a hurry. And they were told not to use leaven in the bread because leaven would take too long to cook or to rise up. Uh, and they were literally going to be thrust out of Egypt, as we know. But now, now Jesus, Jesus doesn't explain any of this as he lifts up the bread. Instead, he reinterprets it to represent himself. So instead of Israel's uh, afflictions and their haste, it now represents his body. So the focus is no longer now on Israel's sufferings, but now it will be on Jesus' sufferings. So he blesses the bread. Then he breaks the bread. And then he says something that was absolutely unexpected and out of the blues for his apostles. He says, this is my body. This is my body. And these words are found nowhere in any, any Passover ritual. Never done before. They had nothing to do with the Passovers that the apostles would have been going to since they were little boys. They had never heard this before. But Jesus said, eat this bread because this bread is my body. And they had heard him talk like this back in John 6, where he said that he was the bread from heaven, where he said that he was the bread of life, and that everyone who eats this bread or his flesh would live forever. And they heard him say that unless you eat his flesh and drink his blood, you have no life in you, and that his flesh was food indeed. But now he is literally holding the bread in his hands and he is breaking it and he is telling his apostles to eat it because it's his body. Well, there has been much debate, much debate over the centuries as to what Jesus means when he says, this is my body. This is my body. This is my blood. And there are four views, four views as to what he means, four views out there. The first one is the Roman Catholic view, which is called transubstantiation. Uh, which says that the bread and the wine cease to be bread and wine, and they actually, literally change into the body and blood of Jesus. And they derive this 
from a tremendous misunderstanding of John chapter 6. They take all those bread of life passages very literally and not figuratively, and thus they say Jesus is literally giving them uh, something that looks like bread, something that tastes like bread, but is actually flesh. Something that looks like wine and actually tastes like wine, but in all actuality, it's actually blood. And there are a slew of problems with this interpretation, but suffices to say that Jesus was in no way speaking literally. Just like when he said to his apostles, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And remember what the, the apostles thought, oh, we forgot to bring bread, he's angry, we forgot to bring bread. He wasn't talking literally, right? The, the, the leaven was, was their false teaching, was their hypocrisy. So beware of that is what he's saying. Right? And so now he's not talking literally. He's not speaking literally uh, uh, about his, his body and his blood. Right? Just as he was not speaking literally when he said, I am the vine. Nor was he speaking literally when he said, I am the door or a literal shepherd or a gate or he the literal light. Right? Uh, none of those which are all found in John's gospel. Right? They are figures of speech. They are descriptors to explain a reality about him, something, a truism about the Savior. I mean, common sense tells you he wasn't handing the apostles his physical flesh and his literal blood. And here's the thing. The apostles certainly didn't think they were eating literal flesh and drinking literal blood. And, and here's why. Because both of those things would have been an abomination to any Jew. No Jew would have, would have eaten flesh. And no Jew would have, would have ever drank blood because it was against the mandates of Jewish law. Now, the second position of this is my body is called consubstantiation, uh, which was held by Luther and Lutherans today. Uh, and this says that the physical bread and the physical wine is somehow united with the physical blood and the physical body of Jesus. So it's a, it's a mix. Right? And, and so it is, it is literal bread and literal wine with literal body and literal blood of Jesus all mixed together. You're getting a mishmash of bread and, and body. The third view was Calvin's position and held by many Presbyterians and Methodists this day, which says that the bread and wine are just bread and wine. But when you take them in faith, there comes a special blessing that cannot be had uh, without taking it or apart from it. The fourth view was Swingley's view or position, uh, which is held by Baptists and others this day, which says that the bread and wine are mementos or symbols to remind the saints of Christ's atoning work for them, uh, which is why Jesus said in Luke 22:19, do this in remembrance of me. And you need to know, when I was studying this, and actually Dan pressed me on a question, which I didn't know, uh, so I had to go look it up. But, but, but this wasn't like Calvin's view or Zwingli's view. These views, these four views, even transubstantiation, or the Roman Catholic view, they were kicking around since like the early third century. Like these views were always kicking around, but kind of got cemented as time went on. Right? So been, there's always been these varying views. Now, now this is my body is definitely a figure of speech. I think that's very obvious, right? Uh, but, but then the question is, what does he mean when he says it? If it is a figure of speech, then what is it a figure for? Well, Luke 22 and 1 Corinthians 11 helps us because Luke 22 says, this is my body, which is given to you. And in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul reiterating the Lord's uh, commands here, he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Now, given and broken really mean the same thing. 
Right? He gave his body to be put to death. That's what it means. Now some say, whoa, ho, ho, broken. There's a contradiction right there because Psalm 34.20 prophesies that the Messiah shall keep all his bones and not one of them would be broken, which John, John picks up in John 19.36 and affirms when he says that these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. But Jesus wasn't talking about the breaking of his bones when he says, my body was broken to you. He means that his body was broken in the sense that it was beaten to a bloody pulp. That his visage was marred than more than any man ever before. That he had spikes driven through his hands and his feet. That he had thorns, large thorns, crushed into his skull. That his back was ripped open and torn apart through scourging. That a spear pierced his side and blood and water spilled out. So his body was broken in the sense that it was beaten and that it was killed. It was killed. Well, when Jesus says, this is my body, what he's telling us is that he's a man. He's a man. He was indeed a man. He's a man. He had a body like every other person who ever lived. You see, before the incarnation or Christmas or the birth of Jesus, Jesus was spirit, just as the Father is spirit. But in the fullness of time, he took on our nature, a second nature. He condescended to be born of a woman, of a virgin. As one commentator said, the Lord of all stooped so low that he hung upon a woman's breast so he could one day hang upon the cross. He became one of us. He became bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. And this was the only way that he could save men from their sins, by becoming one of us. By fulfilling the law of God which men cannot fulfill and which condemns men doing so as a man and then to offer up his spotless sinless life as a sin offering to his father for his people so God became a man God became a man amazing beautiful mind blowing you know impossible for, for, for an unsaved person to grasp very hard to say people to really grasp the true. Or as Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, God was manifested in the flesh. God was manifested in the flesh. So he needed a body. Because he had to suffer with a body. He had to be killed in a body. He had to be a man so that he could become a substitute for men. The shepherd had to lay down his life for the sheep. Well, Jesus tells his apostles to take and eat the bread. Because it represents his body, which would be killed for them. And take and eat means you have to receive what I am giving you. And what I am giving you is me. I am giving you me. Which means you have to feed on Christ. Right? If you are going to live and have life eternally and be sustained, you have to feed on Christ. Right? Just as we need physical food to survive, so too we need spiritual food if we are to live eternally. You see, without taking Christ into our innermost beings, we will perish. And the Christ we feed on, by the way, was a crucified Christ. Was a Christ who died for us. And he is only our food insofar as he's been sacrificed for us. Right? If Jesus didn't die, then he could not be food for us. And there would be no nourishment in him. Just knowing his teachings, just knowing the miracles, just believing he did a lot of good stuff, if he had not gone to the cross if they had not bore the wrath of God for your sin and my sin, it would be of no use. 
There would be no nourishment in Jesus. He couldn't be food for us that way. He is only our food because He did die for us. And He delivered us from an eternal judgment. So we need to feed on Him. Which is another way of saying, we need to believe in Him is what He's saying. We need to believe in Him. We need to have faith in Him and what He has done. Faith that what He did on the cross, that what He did at Calvary's cross, paid for all of our sins. All of them. And that is the ground of our pardon and our eternal life. We're trusting in Him and Him alone and in His work. So we need faith. Faith to follow Him. Faith to obey Him. All right? And that necessitates abiding in Him. And we feed on Him because without Him, He says, we can do nothing. We are absolutely helpless and we'll starve to death without Him. Right? We can do nothing to gain favor with God. We can do nothing ever to please God or glorify God. And as we eat the bread, we remember that He and He alone brought us out of the bondage of sin and He brought us into His marvelous life. And as we drink the cup, we remember that it was His blood that washes away and pays for the wages of our sins. Listen, He didn't die. He didn't die to deliver men from the oppression of Egypt or Rome or drug addictions or Islamic terrorism or any other thing. He didn't die to deliver us from bad people in this world. He died to deliver us from the curse of the law. He died to deliver us and pay for our penalty sin. And we live in a day, we live in a day when men want to be delivered from everything but the penalty of their sin. They do. But the scriptures tell us, tell us clearly in Ephesians 2, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. And then in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, insomuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same. He was one of us. That through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their time subject to bondage. He came to free us. He came to free us from the bondage of sin. And so we see, firstly, a covenant of death, and now a covenant of forgiveness. Look at verses 27 and 28. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sin. When Jesus took the cup, it was one of the four cups of wine which they drank during the Passover meal. Each cup represented an aspect of Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7. Uh, and the first cup there was the cup of salvation. The second cup was the cup of deliverance. The third cup was known as the cup of blessing. The fourth cup was the cup of praise. And you need to know, like I thought to myself, I got a lot of wine going on there. You know? And, and I thought to myself, they're drinking a lot of wine. But they diluted the wine with a, a lot of water. So it was very watered down wine, just if you were wondering. Well, no one is really sure which cup Jesus used as the symbol for his blood. But most commentators believe it would have been the third, the cup of blessing. Uh, and that's because in Luke 22, 20, uh, it says that Jesus took the cup after the meal. All right, so, well, like the bread then, he gives thanks to the Lord for the cup and, and then he, he had them pass it around and each of them would, would drink from it. Uh, and the reason he wanted them to drink from it is because it represented his blood, the blood of the new covenant. Uh, and, and, and this is a new covenant as opposed to the old covenant. 
Now, a covenant is just an agreement. It's a pact. And every Jew, every Jew knew what the covenant was. It was a pact between God and Israel made through Moses. Every Jew knew that. Uh, and, and this covenant, and in this covenant, God said that he, would, uh, that he would keep and protect and prosper and bless the people of Israel. But they had to do something. They had to obey him. They had to follow his commands. They had to be loyal and true to him. Right? They, they, they had to be faithful to him and not go after the gods of the other nations. They had to not do those things. In other words, this covenant said, do and live. But if you disobey, you will die or be exiled from the land of God uh, that he was giving them. So it was, it was a conditional covenant. Blessings are to be had so long as you meet the conditions. And what ratified this old covenant was blood. It was blood. And we see this. Turn to Exodus chapter 24. Let's see this, this, this covenant being ratified. Verses 3 to 8. All right? Moses has the people together. We're going to see what he says. We're going to hear the response. And we'll see what, what, does, what happens after that. In Exodus 24, verse 3, we read, So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said, we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. And they rose early in the morning and they built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half, half the blood and put it in basins. And half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people. And they said, here it is again, all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. We'll follow it. And Moses took the blood, that's the other half of the blood, and sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. So Moses tells them the law. He tells them God's word and they say, we'll do it. We will obey. We will follow what God has said. And then Moses seals or ratifies this covenant by, by sprinkling half the blood of the ox on the altar, that's God's part, and the other half on the people. Meaning this is a pact between God and you, and it is sealed in blood. It is sealed in blood. You know, when you were a kid, your blood brothers don't do that today. You know what people have, right? But it was sealing it in blood. Now, you know and I know the Israelites, they failed miserably in this covenant, which brought about all kinds of punishments, and eventually destruction and exile by Assyria and then Babylon, which is why we read in Jeremiah 22, 8 and 9, right? And many nations will pass by this city and everyone will say to his neighbor, why has the Lord done so to this great city? In other words, why is he devastated? Why are they all exiled now up to Babylon? Right. Then they will answer, because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and worshipped other gods and served them. Ezekiel, for thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, who despise the oath by breaking the covenant. Hebrews picks it up. Hebrews 8, 9. Right? God said that, that because Israel did not continue in his covenant, he disregarded them. Boom. Got rid of them. So they broke the covenant of God. They broke the covenant with God. And here's the thing. The old covenant was never meant to make men righteous. Right? It, it was never meant to make men righteous. It was meant to show men just how far they fall from God's standards and that they're unrighteous. 
Right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It was meant to show them they don't muster up. You can't meet it. You can't do it on your own. And in Galatians 3.24, he says the law, right? That's the covenant they're obeying, supposedly. The law was a tutor, a teacher, a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. You see, what the law does is it shows you you're a sinner, right? The, the law brings the knowledge of sin. Paul said, I wouldn't have known that I was a, a blasphemer or a liar or anything else unless the law said so. The law shows us we're a sinner. And it also shows us we're not able to cleanse ourselves and to save ourselves from it. We can't do it. Romans 3, 19 and 20 tells us that the law renders sinners speechless. Boom. This is what I am. That we can't justify ourselves. Romans 7, 7 tells us the law helps us to see our guilt before God. So the Old Covenant... The law is good. In fact, it is the perfect standard uh, which men are required to meet. Right? God's law is a reflection of God's person. And since He is holy, His law is holy. But we can't meet the law. We can't obey the law. We can't fulfill the law. Right? And, and so the law is good. And men are required to meet the law and obey the law, but they never will. None of us will. And that, and here it is, that ought to drive us to Christ. The fact that I can't do it. I can't fulfill it. I can't be holy as He is holy. Nor can you. Nor can any man born of woman bar one. Alright? We can't do it. And so it ought to drive us to the one who did do it. And that is Jesus. That is Jesus. You see, God had always intended to make a new covenant. The old covenant was just so that it would set up the new covenant. It was always intended to be a new covenant, a better covenant. Not only with the Jews, but with all men. You see, God, God He loves all kinds of people. Right? And so it's opened up to the world. And as was read today by Michael, it was already prophesied this new covenant was coming. Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Something new. Not what you know now, but something new. Not according to the covenant I made with your fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Not, I'll do this and you do that, and if you don't do that, I'm going to do this instead. Right? Not that anymore. Right? My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, right? in other words, I, I was married to them, right? says the Lord. But, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. It's gonna, I'm going to put it in them. I'll write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. God saves all kinds of people, right? I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Right? So this, this new covenant included, included God putting his law in men's hearts and minds. Uh, and that men would know him personally and that he would forgive them of their sins and notice, notice in all of that what he says I will, I will do this I will do that, I will give this four times he says he will do something but not once does he say but you got to do this and you got to do that that's because in the new covenant God does everything God does everything 
in Ezekiel 11, 19 and 20, picks, picks this up. He says, I will give them one heart. I will put a new spirit within them and take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Why? That they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. Listen, they could never live for me when, when, when they were just had the, the old covenant, when they didn't trust in, in what it was pointing to. But now, they will because I'll put my spirit in them. And I'll take what is a rock-hard, stone-cold, dead heart and I'll make it alive. I'll make it alive. And I'm going to do it through my son. So in the New Covenant, God does everything. The Old Covenant was two-sided. But the New Covenant is one-sided. And it's one-sided because it is fulfilled for us in Christ. Listen, the mandate for obedience has not changed. The wages of sin has not changed. None of that has changed. They've just been met perfectly by the one representing us, Jesus Christ. In fact, in Isaiah 42, 6, God says that His servants the Messiah would actually be, he himself would actually be our covenant. He says this, I will keep you, talking about Jesus, and give you, Jesus, as a covenant to the people. You are the covenant, is what he's saying. You are the covenant. So the new covenant is unconditional. We don't have to do anything, and here's why. Because we can't do anything. We can't do anything. And Christ has done everything. Because only he could do everything. Which is why he had to be the God-man. It is a better covenant because it actually accomplishes something. And that's because the blood of Christ literally cleanses us from all sin. But the blood of bulls and goats and all those other kind of animals could never take away even one sin. Now understand, God set up the sacrificial system in Israel to show them that there needed to be a payment or an atonement for sin. It's showing them that. They understood that. Right? That there had to be a sacrifice and also somebody, a mediator, offering that sacrifice, a priest. And by the way, as an aside, I'll just throw this in now. The reason why there are no more priests and the whole idea of a priest today is unbiblical because we don't need somebody standing between us and Christ anymore or us and God. Christ is our once and forever high priest. So it does away with the whole priestly system. The whole sacrificial system is done. It is completed. It is finished. It is fulfilled in Christ. So we don't need a priest to stand before us and go in between us and God. Christ is our priest. And He offers us free access through Him. So they knew there had to be a sacrifice and a mediator offering the sacrifice, a priest. Right? He said in Leviticus 17.11, For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. The blood makes atonement for the soul. And the writer of Hebrews picks that up. In Hebrews 9, we read, And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. None. And the shedding of blood means death. And it doesn't just mean death, if you think about it. The shedding of blood means violent death. Right? When you hear someone like someone's blood was shed, you think, man, that must have been violent. Which is what would happen to Jesus, of course. And time and time and time again throughout the Old Covenant, animals were slaughtered and their blood was shed. 
as they were offered up for, for sacrifices for sins. And the reason, the reason they had to keep sacrificing animals is because they couldn't take away the sin. You understand that if the sins could have been taken away, they would have stopped doing this. As, as Michael read in Hebrews 10, 1-4, for the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. They can't, they can't make you right in God's eyes. They can't. But then, would they not have ceased to be offered? In other words, this bull did it. We sacrificed this bull and all our sins are gone. Woo, done doing the sacrifice. Save my money now on the animals. We would be done. He says they would be done. You wouldn't be offered anymore. For the worshippers, once purified, would have no more consciousness of sin. If I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. So if animal sacrifices could actually take away sins, you wouldn't keep needing to do animal sacrifices. Therefore, they were temporary. They were a temporary covering, if you will, uh, and they were looking forward, pointing forward to the once-for-all-time sacrifice. They were looking forward to the shedding of Jesus' blood, which would actually bring forgiveness of sins forever, and thus would institute a new covenant. You see, this new covenant would be sealed by blood as well, but His blood, which is the sole ground of this covenant, His blood is the only blood that can actually remit sins and pardon sins and release men from their sin debt. And he offered this sacrifice not a million times, not year by year, not behind some, some curtain drum to see, but he did it once for all time. Right? Hebrews 7 says, uh, says that Jesus does not need daily, as those other high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's, uh, for he died once for all when he offered up himself. Hebrews 9, Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, once to bear the sins of many. Hebrews 10, he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, one and done. So the new covenant was ratified with the all-sufficient, efficacious blood of Jesus. It accomplished redemption for all that it was shed for. Hebrews 13 calls this blood, this blood, the blood of the everlasting covenant. Therefore, the old covenant is obsolete. And and I know that there are believers out there that want to hold on to the Old Covenant. They want to hold on to the feasts and the fastings and the food ordinances and the different sacrificial type of things. Right? They want to hold on to the rituals and stuff and drag them into the new. But you've got to understand, they have fulfilled their role. And their role was to point us to the once-for-all-time sacrifice of Jesus. We don't need those things. Why go back into bondage? You know, why, why go back into, into legalism when you're free by the grace of Jesus and His work at the cross? We're no longer under the law, we're told. Right? Romans 6 tells us we're under grace. We're no longer children uh, of Hagar, the slave woman, we're told, but now we're children of Sarah, the free woman. Right? But this new covenant, as glorious as it is, and it is unbelievably glorious, it came at a cost, a heavy cost. It came at the shedding of Jesus' blood. But it accomplished the remission of the sins of many. Therefore, let us not forget what His blood brought us. That it brought us the forgiveness of our sins. 
And not just some of our sins. Not just the worst of our sins. Not just the, the things we don't even want to think about that we've done. But all of our sins. From the vilest act you've ever committed to those little quiet thoughts of pride and lust and arrogance and those little things that creep around our hearts. Right? He paid it all. Right? Every sinful thought and act and deed and word, He paid it all. As the hymn writer said, Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but Jesus washed it white as snow. And listen, the Scriptures tell us He died for all the sins, right? For all the sins or the remission of the sins of many. Of many. And many means not all. Because if Jesus died for all the sins of all people, then, it, then, it, then all people are forgiven of all their sins. Because Jesus didn't shed his blood to make salvation possible. Right? He didn't do it to make it possible. But to literally save the people that the Father has given him. His, his sacrifice accomplished something. It didn't just make it like willy-nilly. Anybody could like apply this thing. And if you don't, well, it's just laying out there. Right? It actually had done something. And if he came to save the world all-inclusive, why in the world was he not praying for all the world all-inclusive in John 17 in his high priestly prayer? But he was praying for those that the Father, his disciples, and those who would believe through the disciples. So Jesus gave his life's blood a ransom for many, as Matthew 20, 28 says. Now listen, I don't know we sang it, or, or I think Derek said it, or Dylan said it, or someone said it, but, but there's no greater cleansing agent in all the world than the blood of Jesus. There is no greater cleansing agent, right? Good works can't wash away sins. Though, a majority of humanity is actually trying to do that. And before I was saved, I was in that majority, right? Good works cannot, cannot wash away sins. I remember this past week, we were, we were sharing the gospel. And by the way, tomorrow night, 5.30, commercial time, yeah? 5.30 at Cross from McDonald's. You say, well, I can't come. I've never done this before. Yes, you can. Come on out with us. Come on out, hand our tracks, talk to people. Get, get called names with the rest of us. All right? But, but come out and share the gospel with us. So we meet this guy. I think it was Dan, myself, and my wife at this point. And, and he's listening. He's actually filming Dan. And I'm like, why is this guy filming Dan? And I'm like, well, I'm a little leery there. Like, what's going on? Is this going to be on like, the news or something? And so I go over there, talk to him. And he, he says, I said, are you a believer? He goes, like this. I was like, you know what? It's like being pregnant. You are, you aren't. You know, like, this is, like this is like, I don't know about that. He goes, well, you know, I don't know. My, my wife, we go to this church, and you know, they talk about they want money, 10%. He said that the, the 10% thing, the tithing thing was killing him. And so he said, uh, you know, I don't know. He said, yeah, he's, he's cursing as he's saying all this stuff. Oh, boy. And so he said, he basically says, I try to do the right thing. I try to be a good person. I try to, try to treat people the right way. Ah, if I see a nice looking girl, you know, blah, 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 blah. I don't do anything. I love my wife. But you know, something comes along, that's how I am. That's all guys are. And, and I'm listening to him saying, he's got the good guy mentality. He's got the, um, I'm okay. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, my good will outweigh my bad. The problem with that idea and that thinking, which is the bulk of humanity, is God is not 51-49. God is not 70-30. God is not even 99-1, to tell you the truth. God is 100% nada. My Spanish friends. Alright? God is, God is all or nothing. Be holy. Alright? No sin is entering into heaven. And we've got to get away from this idea that there's even a shred or an ounce or an inkling of goodness in us. Because God says there's nothing good in us. 
And you need to come to that point. And when you come to that point, you're at a good place. Because now you're ready. Now you're prepared. Because now you've got nothing. And now you've got to cling to Him and trust Him for everything, right? Alright. Thirdly, a covenant of hope. Verses 29 to 30. But I say to you, I will not drink of, the, of this fruit of the vine from now until, the day, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, uh, they went up to the, out to the Mount of Olives. All right? Jesus says he's going to die. He's going to shed his blood for the remission of sins. And this will institute a new covenant, as he does now. Uh, one where man will meet God's criteria by Christ and be counted righteous in him. Uh, but he still has to go to the cross. He hasn't done that yet. Uh, and, and he has to leave his apostles. Uh, and, and things aren't going to be like they've been before for them. And so he knows it's going to be hard. He knows they're going to be topsy-turvy and their lives are going to absolutely take, go in drastic different directions. And so to encourage them, he says, I'm going to see you again. But the next time I see you, I will drink wine with you in my Father's kingdom. Or as he says in Luke 22:18, not until the kingdom of God comes. So he tells them that he's going to suffer and he's going to be crucified. And, and he tells them that he is the true Passover lamb and that he must be sacrificed and his blood must be shed to cleanse sinners. Uh, and because he knows how weak they are and he knows how frail their faith is and he knows that they are soon going to be shaken to the core even that night and the next couple of days he knows that it's going to be like, there's going to be a, 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 a baseball bat that's going to hit the beehive and they're going to fly everywhere. He knows that. He says this, I'm going to leave you I'm, I'm not going to be here in the flesh anymore, but I'm going to come again. And when you see me again, uh, uh, and you will see me again, it's not just when, but you will, and when you do, it'll be infinitely better than what you know now. And he's talking about the glory to come. He just told them days before that he would return again with great power and great glory, and that he would sit on his throne of glory, and that he would gather his elect to himself, and he would condemn all unbelievers. Right? So I'm going. But, but when I come back, my, my, my kingdom will not be like the way you have known it here. It's going to be different, guys. We will drink of the fruit of the vine in my consummated kingdom. Now, I don't think Jesus is speaking literally here, though some do. I don't think he's speaking literally that he and his apostles will sit around the table in the future kingdom and sip vino together. I don't think so, although some do. I think he's speaking figuratively here. As wine or the fruit of the vine is often a metaphor in the scriptures for joy or for delight. Example, Isaiah 25, 6. And in this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, uh, a feast of wines on, on the leaves, a fat of fat things uh, full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the leaves. In Psalm 104, 15, we're told that God makes wine, and that wine makes glad the heart of man. Isaiah 51, 55, 1, speaking of the time to come. Ho, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters, and have, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. You see, so at times, he's talking about this glorious joy and delight, being in the presence of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is coming. So at times, wine represents joy and delight that makes the heart glad. And I think that's how he's using it in Matthew 26. It's another way of saying, we will feast again. And we will feast again at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Again, I don't think it's some physical table we're going to be sitting around at this big wedding table. I think it's a metaphor for this unbelievable glory and joy in the presence of the glorious one. That's what I think he's saying. 
Revelation 19.9. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of Lamb. You bet they're blessed. Because there's nothing better. And it is at this time, as we read in Matthew 13.43, that the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. It's going to get glorious. And it is at this time that Revelation 7.17 says, The Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water. Again, I think it's all metaphorical. So things are going to get better than they could have ever imagined. Because Jesus will bring them to himself. Where there is no devil. There are no demons. There is no sin in the world. There is no sin in us. No indwelling sin. There's no more sorrow. There's going to be no more death. Right? And there's no more death. And where the, the people of Jesus will know him like they have never known him before. You and I... We have, we're, if we're saved and born again, we know Him. We know Him. But we don't know Him like we're going to know Him in glory. Right? We don't know Him that way yet. So much more to come. And I think, I think we're just scratching the surface of just who He is and that glory that's coming. So things are going to get better. And you will see Him in all His glory. And you will be in glory as He will glorify you. So the bread and the cup are to remind us of what he has done for us and what he is still going to do for us. Well, the text ends in verse 30 saying that they sung a hymn and departed, going up to the Mount of uh, Olives. And at every Passover, the Jews would sing six psalms, Psalms 113 to 118. These psalms are known, in the, uh, known as the Halal. And Jewish, uh, Jesus sang them. And they really must have ministered to his soul as they spoke of him, they're speaking of the Messiah and the work that he would accomplish. So let me give you a sampling of Psalm 113 to 118. There we read, The pains of death surrounded me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I called on the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? He sang these songs. And I'm sure when he sang them, he was strengthened in his inner man by the truths contained therein. Those truths, which were amazing truths, but truths about him. Truths which he was going to incur and go through. And how God was going to help him through it. And here's the amazing thing. And this is where we have to think for ourselves. He is hours away from being betrayed, arrested, falsely accused, beaten to a bloody pulp, and then crucified. And yet, at this time, just hours before, his heart is delighting in praising God. Listen, people on death row aren't singing praises to God when they're eating their, their last meal. I'm just guessing that. They're not. But Jesus, right, he was. And he is on death row, so to speak, and he's eating his last meal. And he's praising God. And what this teaches us is that no matter how difficult life is, no matter what curveballs are thrown our way, we should be able to sing praises to God in our own souls. Right? We should have joy in our hearts even amidst the great trials and tribulations and troubles that are coming our way. Right? We should be able to sing praises to God. Because no matter what happens in the here and now, 
Everything that happens in the here and now is under His control, 100% of it. And it is ordained by Him for us. Nothing is haphazard in this life. And whatever this momentary light affliction may be, and we all have them, and we will continue to have them, it is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Amen? And that's why there are so many suffering passages in the Scriptures. Because we need to know we're going to suffer for His sake. And just being in these bodies, we're going to suffer. Well, let me close by leaving you with a couple of things to consider. And the first is just how much Jesus loves you as people. He's hours away from shedding His blood. He knows the agony. He knows the agony that awaits Him. He knows it. Yet He calmly and willingly embraces it. Why? Because His love for His sheep is more intense than His agony of the cross. Let me say that again. Because His love for His sheep, and make it personal on you, is more intense than His agony of the cross. And He knows the agony, so much so, in just an hour or two, he's going to be, be sweating, as it were, great drops of blood while he weeps and cries out in prayer for the Father in his humanity to take away, if it was his will, let the cup pass from him. Because he knows the wrath of God coming upon him. But his love for his sheep is even greater. That's the key there. His love for sheep is greater. His love for you is so strong that he will fulfill everything necessary to wash away your sins. You see, he was willing to be bruised for your iniquities. He was willing to be smitten by God and afflicted for your pardon. He willingly suffered the wrath and separation of God and from his Father so you could be included in the family, his family. So the good shepherd gave his life for you, his sheep. And that's because he loves you. So when you start to doubt or become weary or cynical or waffle in your faith, remember, remember that He loves you so much that He secured a seat for you at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Even today, this is to remind us once again of who He is and what He did and how we stand before Him. Forgiven. Loved. Cherished. Kept. Secondly, I would like you to consider the need for the cross of Jesus to be the central part of our preaching and teaching and sharing or ever, anything else we do. I know that's a no-brainer, but let's look at it from the text because it's a very big part of this. 1 Corinthians 11. We're told, as often as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming the Lord's death till He comes. You see, the new covenant is anchored in the cross. It is anchored in the cross. The, remissions, the remission of sins is anchored in the, cro- anchored in the cross. And we would do well if we continually teach and share and meditate upon the wondrous cross. And you can't preach and you can't teach the cross if you are unwilling to preach and teach sin. Whoa, that's a touchy subject. No kidding, it's a touchy subject. To kill Jesus. If you are unwilling to, you will not be able to preach and teach the cross. And you must preach and teach sin in its totality and all its evil and the consequences for it. Because without it, the cross and the death of Jesus Christ and His shed blood, they really lose their significance. It is a really weak cross if, if sin isn't so hideous and so wicked. And God hated it so much. You want to know how much God hates sin? You look at the cross. You want to know how much God loves sinners? You look at the cross. Lastly, if you're not in Christ's kingdom this day, I would like you to consider one word in verse 28. And that is the word many. 
Because Christ shed His blood for many for the remission of sins. And many doesn't mean all, but it does mean some. It does mean some. And as of now, you are still under the law and you still owe God a debt that you cannot pay for. That is for your sin. And you will be judged for your sins and you will suffer eternally for them. But Jesus was judged for sins in the place of many. And he suffered the wages of sin in the place of many. And what determines a person going to heaven instead of going to hell is whether they are one of the many. And how you become one of the many is by turning, first recognizing your sin, turning from your sin, and freely receiving the gift of pardon and life from Jesus, and feeding on Jesus, which means trusting in Jesus, surrendering to Jesus, and following Jesus, and obeying Jesus in everything. And this offer of salvation goes out to all people. right? And as he sits at the table, if you will, with the offer of himself, he says, anyone can take and eat. Anyone can take and eat, even you. Even you. But you must come to him on his terms. But if you do, he receives you. And I'll save you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the cross. And Lord, thank you for the blood of Jesus. And Lord, thank you for the truth of redemption in him. And Lord, thank you for the new covenant. Uh, Lord, it's a marvelous plan. It's an it's amazing grace that you would even save a soul. But Lord, I pray that those of us who know you that we would marvel all the more. Lord, it's such a great sacrifice and such abundant love. And Lord, for those who don't, I pray that even today they would see this great love and be drawn to Him and turn from their sin. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, now we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. So, Noel, will you help us that? Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.